0: And now, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today, Annalisa Taylor, who I'm sure everybody knows, associate professor of Spanish, and a faculty affiliate in Latinx studies and uh, at the University of Oregon. Uh, Annalisa's interests include Latin American cultural production and social movements, race, gender, sexuality, and coloniality in greater Mexico and uh, the Mesoamerican diaspora, indigenous Mesoamerican civilizations, foodways, and diasporas, and cultural strategies for transborder, immigrant and migrant rights, food sovereignty, and environmental justice. Her monograph, Indigeneity in the Mexican Cultural Imagination, was published by the University of Arizona Press in 2009. Her essays on Mexican, Latinx, and Latin American culture and society appear in a variety of journals, including Signs, Journal of Women in Culture and Society, the Journal of Latinos in Education, Latin American Literary Review, Journal of Latin American Cultural Studies, and also in several books, including Modern Mexican Culture Critical Foundations and Heritage Speakers of Spanish and Study Abroad. Uh, Annalisa Taylor's work in progress talk today is based on her current research project, Daughters of the Moon, True Life Stories for Mexico's uh, Lacandon Rainforest, which she worked on during her 2021-2022 OHC Faculty Research Fellowship. Please join me in welcoming Annalisa Taylor.
1: Thank you so much for being here on this beautiful day, taking an hour out of your day, your busy days to, um, to listen to what I have to say about my project, Daughters of the Moon. Um, I want to first thank the Oregon Humanities Center for the fellowship that allowed me to work on this project during a term. It was a very difficult time in all of our lives and, uh, You know, so I I worked on this, but I worked on other things, too, and it was kind of a godsend for me, a real lifesaver, to have that fellowship at that time. And I really want to thank Fabienne Moore, who, without, you know, your urging me in the depths of my illness to get my proposal in, I wouldn't be here right now because I just would have been like, I can't possibly get that together. So thank you, and thank you to all of you, colleagues and friends and my mom and everybody here. (laughs) And my um, wonderful people that I see at other humanities events. Um, I want to also thank the Center for the Study of Women in Society and the College of Arts and Sciences. I received funding from both of those units to um, work on this exact project and um, I want to call your attention to my link at the bottom here uh, to donate to the Oregon Humanities Center you can donate once or you can donate um, on a perpetual basis. And um, I sure really am grateful for donors because I wouldn't be here without them, that's for sure. So um, thank you again for being here. Okay, do you recall the first time you heard of a place called La Selva Lacandona, the Lacandon Rainforest? For me, and perhaps for some of you, you know who you are, um, the first time, um, and perha- for me and perhaps for some of you, the first time I can recall having heard of such a place was January 1st, 1994. It was the day the North American Free Trade Agreement that had been brokered by the Mexican, U.S. and Canadian governments in 1992 officially went into effect. Not coincidentally, it was also the day a group of armed indigenous insurgents calling themselves the Zapatista Army of National Liberation, Ejercito Zapatista de Liberación Nacional, or EZLN, declared war on the Mexican government. In their declaration of the Lacandon jungle, the EZLN general command and their non-indigenous spokesperson, Subcomandante Marcos, called on their Mexican brothers and sisters to, quote. Join this struggle as the only path so that we will not die of hunger due to the insatiable ambition of a 70 year dictatorship led by a clique of traitors that represent the most conservative sellout groups, the same ones that opposed Hidalgo and Morelos, betrayed Vicente Guerrero, sold half our country to the foreign invader, imported a European prince to rule our country, formed the scientific Porfirista dictatorship opposed the petroleum expropriation in 1938, massacred the railroad workers in 1958, and the students in 1968. The same ones that today take everything from us, absolutely everything, claiming to wage a just war against the Mexican di- against the quote Mexican dictatorship that we suffer from, monopolized by a one-party system which as an aside, I'll be referring to in this talk as the PRI, which is the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, or in English, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, which tells you a lot about its character. Uh, Claiming to wage a just war against the Mexican dictatorship that we suffer from, monopolized by a one-party system, led by Carlos Salinas de Gortari, the EZLN embedded Article 39 of the 1917 Constitution into their founding document as follows. National sovereignty essentially and originally resides in the people. All political power emanates from the people and its purpose is to help the people. The people have at all times the inalienable right to alter or modify their form of government. When pre-operatives were not ignoring the constitution altogether, they applied it selectively and self-servingly, which the film La Ley de Herodes depicts with mordant humor. Uh, Nonetheless, Mexico's extraordinarily progressive and enlightened constitution stands as a testament to the ideals for which the Zapatista's namesake, Emiliano Zapata, had fought for in the Mexican Revolution before being assassinated in a plot to put down the peasant faction intent on continuing the fight for land and justice, hasta no vencer o morir, until victory or death. The EZLN insurgency erupted just as I was beginning a graduate program in Latin American Cultural Studies, and it caused an immediate stir among my peers and professors. We read the Declaración de la Selva Lacandona soon after it had traveled instantaneously from somewhere in Chiapas to a server at the University of Texas in Austin, thanks to the relatively new technology called Internet, (laughs) new for civilians at that time anyway. We were also glued to the nightly news, where we saw photos and video footage of young Mayan men and women taking control of the colonial city of San Cristóbal de las Casas and other towns in Chiapas. In the following weeks, months, and years, the Zapatistas gradually shifted their agenda and strategies, mainly out of a need to protect themselves from the brutal military and paramilitary violence and harassment that the federal government visited upon them. As their focus turned from armed rebellion to international anti-neoliberal activist summits, to the establishment of autonomous caracoles, which is like a nautilus or a um, snail shape, um, referring to the organization, protection, self-governance of their communities. We now had a plethora of letters and communiques penned by de Marcos that were being collected and published in book form, as well as a growing body of scholarship documenting the Zapatistas' ongoing challenge to the federal government's repressive rule. I was fascinated with what I imagined to be a collaborative intercultural writing process between Marcos and the Maya commandantes for whom he was acting in his words as quote translator of a revolution Many of these texts could be read as palimpsests of rhetorical devices epistemological perspectives and syntactic structures rooted in Tzeltal Tzotzil Tojolabal and other Maya languages spoken in Chiapas combined with Marcos's urban and urbane Spanish For example on February 14, 1994, Marcos wrote, or took dictation, the oldest of the old of our peoples spoke words to us, words that came from very far away, about when our lives were not, about when our voice was silenced, and the truth journeyed in the words of the oldest of the old of our peoples. And we learned through the words of the oldest of the old that the long night of pain of our people came from the hands and words of the powerful, that our misery was wealth for a few, that on the bones and the dust of our ancestors and our children, the powerful built themselves a house, and that in that house our feet could not enter, and that the light that lit it fed itself on the darkness of our houses, and that its abundant table filled itself on the emptiness of our stomachs, and that their luxuries were born of our misery. The self-consciously paradoxical position that the EZLN was taking carrying, quote, guns that aspired to remain silent and begging off the overthrow of the state that was the mainstay of prior Latin American guerrilla fighters, challenged everything we thought we understood about revolutionary movements in Latin America and cast out on the celebratory U.S. narrative that the Cold War was over and the free market had triumphed. The EZLN's wit and discipline in developing an instantly recognizable public image recombined the look of international leftist guerrilla folk hero, Che Guevara, with Mayan symbolism and discourses of knowledge about identity, time, and cultural resilience. I wondered how these aesthetic and discursive innovations shared among people of all generations, communicating across several different Mayan languages, related to the social conditions of possibility for their movement to have come about at at the particular time and place in which it did and to have been met with such enthusiastic solidarity by leftist intellectuals and activists, students, workers, and environmentalists throughout Latin America and the world. At that time, however, my understanding of Mexico as a pluricultural, plurilingual nation and of the Mexican people as agents of their own and and of world history was extremely limited, due in part, I'm sure, to the romantic and abject caricatures of Mexicanness or Mexicanidad with which I had been bombarded throughout my life from Hollywood, jingoistic political propaganda and the US public education system. I had not been taught in school, for example, that the first major revolution of the 20th century had been fought not by industrial workers in Europe, but by indigenous peasants in Mexico It should not have come as a surprise that indigenous peasants were once again challenging cemented ideas about their place in history and their capacity to shake up the dominant world order in the present (coughs) moment in 1994. But in hindsight, I do recall that two years before the Zapatista Revolt, I had watched two events unfold in the media that presaged this insurgency. The first was President Salinas de Gortari, Sorry, everything is a little out of order. Um, President Salinas de Gortari. Salinas de Gortari's dramatic modification of Article 27 of the Mexican Constitution. The second was the toppling of a statue of the conquistador Diego de Masariegos in the central plaza of San Cristóbal de las Casas. Article 27 had established the post-revolutionary government's prerogative and legal means to expropriate privately owned lands and redistribute them as communally held tracts called ejidos. In practice, governing elites within the PRI enforced this amendment and the Constitution as a whole selectively and in accordance with their interests. Yet when Salinas posed alongside his party cronies against the backdrop of a larger than life image of Zapata to announce that the government would no longer recognize or protect the communal ownership of these ejidos, he was making clear that their exchange value on Wall Street was henceforth to be given priority over their use value among the small scale farming communities that had organized their lives around them for generations. Be very annoying. I'm so sorry. Generations, with its monopoly on the media, the PRI made it seem as if the Mexican people were cheering on Salinas's formalization of the neoliberal order, for which he had already laid the groundwork with the privatization of the national bank, telecommunications, and other state-owned industries since the late 1980s. Uh, Some critics have characterized the second of these two events, which took place in San Cristóbal de las Casas on October 12, 1992, known in Mexico as El Día de la Raza, and in the United States until recently as Columbus Day, as having foreshadowed the Zapatista Revolt. (coughs) I realize now that at the time of the Zapatista uprising, I had given little thought to how and why the Lacandon Rainforest had come to serve as the EZLN's training ground and home base. I only knew that this clandestine insurgency was taking shape in one of the most remote, mountainous, ethnically diverse, and impoverished parts of Mexico. After making several extended trips to Chiapas and other parts of Mexico to conduct the research for which I wrote the book Paul mentioned, it was my discovery of an unconventional ethnography, entre anhelos y recuerdos, between longing and memory, by Marie Odile Marion, in the university library where I was holed up to complete the last chapters of my dissertation, that I began to understand how the selva's remoteness and isolation had allowed the Zapatistas a modicum of distance. from the Mexican military. What I was able to see on later trips that I took to the northern Lacandon Maya community of Naha, let's see if I can find Naha, yes. Um, and the southern community of Lacanja Chancayab. Um This is, the, the Maya community of Naha takes about five very bumpy and treacherous and very exhausting hours to get to from San Cristobal which is in itself hard to get to um, and then the southern community of Lakan hachan is a little less at about three hours but also quite quite a you know ride in a washing machine um, so um, Like the 17th and 18th century Spanish conquistadores before them, the Mexican state had tried and failed throughout the 19th 19th and much of the 20th century to bring the region under its dominion. It was not until 1970 when President Luis Echeverria made a series of moves that fundamentally changed the Lacandon Maya's relationship with the state and position within the emerging global economy. He brokered a deal with the Lacandon Maya that would allow him to extend the Pan-American Highway through the major, the three major settlements in which their dwindling population had come to reside, and hence to make the selva available for intensive clear cutting, using heavy machinery and other forms of extraction of its riches. The deforestation visited upon the Lacandon rainforest. During the time Marie Odil Marion was conducting research there, greatly influenced her findings regarding their culture. The informants who became her interlocutors take us from a point in time, partly mythical and partly real, when the Lacandon Maya had lived in relative isolation since one branch of their ancestral tree had fled to the rainforest from the Yucatan Peninsula when Spanish conquistadores arrived there in the 16th century. By the mid-20th century, however, the Mexican government began to offer up the Lacandon rainforest to the growing global trade in rainforest hardwoods and other resources. As loggers, gum tappers, and other newcomers spread influenza, measles, and other diseases to which the Lacandon Maya had little prior exposure, their population declined precipitously. By the end of the 20th century, the government's extension of the Pan-American Highway through the rainforest had enabled wanton wanton clear-cutting by transnational timber companies leaving much of this once dense forest on the Mexican side of the Mexico-Guatemala border naked to the sky. Daughters of the Moon, True Life Stories from Mexico's Lacandon Rainforest is my Spanish to English translation and scholarly edition of this book. Marion's original Spanish language text has received virtually no critical attention and is currently out of print. My critical edition comprises a deeply transcultural and concisely annotated literary translation of her book, a contextual introduction, and an analytical study in the form of a translator's afterword. I use each of these elements to make Marion's captivating tapestry of stories accessible to readers with varying degrees of familiarity with the Lacandon rainforest, both as a contested site of meaning and as a hotbed of transnational resource extraction State repression and indigenous resistance. Um, Marion calls and reshapes her interlocutors' heartrending life stories from spoken Maya to written Spanish. She suffered an untimely death from a brain tumor two years after the book's publication, so I cannot ask her the thousands of questions I would have for her, but I hope to do right by her in this book by giving its readers an indelible sense of the human dimensions of ecocide and ethnocide in the Americas and throughout the world. By interweaving the first-person life stories of six Lacandon Maya women with her own anguished reflections on the wholesale destruction of their rainforest home in Chiapas, Mexico, she gives us an extraordinary artifact of Lacandon Maya life on a collision course with national and international development from mid to late 20th century. As a meditation on what it means to bear witness to human rights abuse and ecological destruction, Daughters of the Moon will contribute to the expansion of the humanities agenda toward inclusion of indigenous and other non-Western modes of listening, relating, and acting that center on intersubjective and holistic notions of self-collective and natural world.
2: To understand the real life implications for human rights
1: and environmental justice that Marion's text raises yet ultimately leaves unresolved within the context of rampant transnational resource extraction and state repression of indigenous peoples in Mexico.
0: Her reconstruction of a decades long dialogue with women across three
1: generations asks us what it means for, for Marion to bear witness to their losses. And now I'm going to read just a tiny bit from the first of the six st- stories of La Maya women. So this is my translation of Marie Urbina Marion, who is herself transcribing in
2: La Maya, then Trans- translating to Spanish um, and, and reorganizing,
1: you know, with no idea how much, you know, how much of a hand hands she had in shaping what we're hearing here, which is why, for me, it's this your genre so compelling. Um, so, so King is the oldest of the women, and her story is very indicative of what, what it was like to kind of
2: move through a period of the most intense um, so measles, influenza, and um, small, smallpox uh, epidemics, where you know, families, these large family
1: groups that lived isolated from each other, relatively isolated from each other. Um,
2: you know, once once people started dying, their, their whole method of, of their, their kinship structures really began to fall apart, and this left in women, particularly. I lost and without without, friends, a, fix, without, without a, a without a without a place in society, society and and um, and this sense, sense as kind of said my disease so so this is this, this is, is not king. King. this, this is, what is what they told me not but I'm sure not sure if it's true, it's true. I because I don't know. remember it clearly it was not my, not it was my little brother, brother Chambol and this is not is here here is this this photo this image it was it was my brother little brother Chambol that told me. But I think but they I must think have they told, they told it to him yeah, as well, because my little brother, we're very young, young at the time. I don't think, I don't think he, he had ever been, I don't think he had even been born yet. I, for my father, Keener, he married me off. When he gave, and me gave me away, I, to I had to leave my little sister. sister, and that's why, and that's she, why died she died so, so soon after. after, with no, no one nowhere to care for her. Without, without my mom, mom without, without, without me to hold her, I think she I think must she must have just cried herself to death. My new my new husband, husband, husband Iun brought me all the way so, so, Soha, where he was where he from. was from. His sister and brother in law lived to too. I was very I was very small, cried a ride because I, did, cause I did didn't get I to see my father and my baby sister. He took me to very far away, far to far to the south in Laganakanda River. That was when that was when I learned how to make a yes and hair hair and rayum's meals for him. A girl, girl is considered Marge, marriage marriage alone, it's how don't and so as my husband. Violent uh, well, um, we, we did did eventually return to the cedar river where I had, had been living before. before. But it was no, never the same, never was same. my little no, sister, sister had died. I had returned, I had returned, returned yeah, I, I never got a certain umbrella. Then Cayenne Kayun's died as well. By then by then Tadam was reached the Cedar River where we were living, living. And he came down into these old measles. I was deaf, I mean afraid, afraid, afraid of men, men. just eases, eases. Whenever they when would come to our house, house. I, would I would take up running, up running in the into the forest. Wow. My little brother would run along, along with me, but Kayun would not run, run, away. run away, would not, not away from them. them. He was not afraid of this. He would always say, say, roughly, same things, when he would directly at them, and ask for salt. He'd like he liked I think that's why I think that's he died. Why he died, because he because he looked too much too much. That's how that's he got sick. sick. Nakiman was not as 11, 11 years old. I suppose he's when you were beyond beyond into a with with the the of Nakina. the was nine as years old years old. Her husband had been when died. She made a she way went back to her father's father house house, but this turned out to be a short solution. Keen's family had burned and burned, burned terribly. terribly. He now na- had six, six wives, wives, two of them two still, still very, young. very young. In, In addition to his youngest younger and his step-son, Chung Keen, who was the who was son of one of his wives. Keen had gone to great, great, to steer quickly over the lotting camp camps and the host of a that they represented. But with Kayung's dense he grew even he more the merry, merry, present, present, treaters, and the evils, evils they so he, he sowed. He decided to sidem and bring farther far, south, south, toward the Zendaya River, river the where his friend's family could fresh air, fresh and where the monogamy still stood, stood, in all the arrow area where he were a few more years. There, there, in the den of the ancient territories of the Laka River, king found refuge, dense, dense, tranquilly, Yeah, yeah, that's so, this is um, freezing uh, out. sewing, it is so um, soothing, and
1: there's sort of like, it's like sewing is a pattern. There is a plan, and there's, you know, as long as you follow the directions, you'll get there. It's kind of like, a, you know, um, and it's a string source reading, because you have to know what the meaning is in order to translate it, so you can't just skip over it and just kind of go, oh, I don't really get what's happening. And then the challenge of transforming prose, this is
2: Marion's prose, is less than ideal. It's very repetitive, very worrying,
1: and I'm trying very hard to make it, you know, much more concise. And I'm kind of pushing the limits of what you can do with a translation, and still call it a translation. Because a lot of times, what I do is I translate, you know, a part of the book. Um, I put away the book, and I just work on what I have, the translation. I don't even look at the book for a long time. And I let myself get a little bit farther away from what the book actually says in order to convey the meaning. And I may be very untruthful, but testimonio is a genre that is, by nature, um, impossible to disentangle the truth from you know, the literary artifice of it. And so I'm sort of piling on top of what is literary artifice in you know, an ethnographic testimonio. And creating a little bit more literary artifice. Because if I don't, this book will not really get read by the people that I want to read it. Because Maria Lou Marion is, you know, she needs to get to the point sometimes. So and so do I. <laughs> um, so that challenge of transforming the prose from writerly to readerly while staying as accountable to her as possible. And well, I can only imagine what it means to stay accountable to her. So then there's the potential, however slim for the restorative justice in the new iteration that I am writing, and that has to do basically with the very last chapter, which is called Kuti, and it's about a young girl that Mariolín Marion met. She was the um, one of the many children of Chanki Viejo, the tribal leader, the spiritual leader, leader of the northern Lacandon Maya, who were not into being... Uh, you know, into the missionaries and being evangelized, like the Southern Lacandones like were much more receptive to it. And um, Chan King Viejo was very close friends with a, a very venerated anthropologist. <coughs> Let's see if I can find him, sorry. Yes, uh, Robert D. Bruce, Robert Bruce, who wrote The Last Lords of Palenque with Victor Pereira. And he, in this book, you know, considered the Lacandones to be the, you know, the heirs to the great Mayan Empire, and when he was a fantastic linguist and really, you know, took down all of the mythology, very important as far as understanding this kind of traditional, you know, cosmovision of the life in the forest. Um, but he also kind of went native. Um, Robert Bruce, he wore, you know, wore the Lacandon clothing. He kind of tried to live as close to the way that they lived as possible and he got, you know, he was very friendly and, and of course, the, 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 the kind of observational situation, you know, really melts down when it's all friendly and, and there's and all of that going on. So, and that's one of the topics that Mario Del Marion is tackling here. But Robert Bruce... Had a nephew, Leo Bruce, who uh, was 23 years old when he was traveling through Mexico, kind of lost in his life, um, and he um, came to Naja, uh, where Chanquin Viejo. This is an image of Chanching Viejo, where Chanching Viejo lived with his wives and many children, and um, Leo Leo Bruce. Um, wanted also to go native. He wanted to have, a, he had them, you know, people um, grow a milpa, the, the plot of land with corn, beans, and squash. He wanted to live as close to they lived as possible, but he did not like living close to the ground or with an earthen floor because he didn't like bugs and creatures, which there are many of. So he had a house built by the tzeltales who lived nearby on these tall stilts. And um, he wanted a wife, and he didn't want a wife that was um, of marriageable age. He wanted um, Nook Garcia Paniagua, who was one of Chan King Viejo's uh, daughters. And Chan King Viejo agreed to give her, his daughter, um, Nook Garcia Paniagua, to Leo Bruce. And um, his idea of marriage and when, what he was getting for his money, for his whiskey that he would bring, for all of the goods that he would bring into the community, was different from what Chunking Viejo and the family would have imagined would be her lot. Because to get married, you know, for a young girl in the um, Maya Lacandon, young girl does not necessarily mean that you're having sexual relations or anything like that. It's like you just aren't doing... It. it's marriage and Sex are not connected in the same way it 's not that they 're not at all connected, but it's not this inevitable thing you know and also it just would be impossible to imagine that a man would like rape a, a girl that he had married before she was you know of age and before she was the one who was initiating anyway, he beat her and um, you know just abused her for about six months and um Eventually, he took her to Mexico City, where she stayed with Robert Bu- Bruce for a while while he went back to the United States. Um, and came back, and, you know, one day he, went, he was um, mad at her because she would not kill a chicken because he wanted to eat this chicken. And uh, he hit her, and she fell out of their house and hit her head on a post and on the concrete, you know, sort of... Uh, that was in the ground to get the post there and there's no concrete really in their community in their building nothing hard like that and she he it broke her cervical vertebrae and she didn't die right away but she did die eventually and he was trying to kind of escape but the brothers got in the car with him and he was trying to leave in his truck and they were like oh we'll help you go you know find help and they were just trying to make sure that he didn't get away And he did go to jail in Ocosingo, the regional capital. And he was awaiting trial. This uh, happened in 1993. So on January 1st, 1994, the Zapatistas opened the doors to um, the Ocosingo jail and let everybody out. And he was one of those prisoners um, among so many indigenous political prisoners who were unjustly um, incarcerated. And... um, He was um, awaiting trial at that time, and he escaped uh, and just took off to Guatemala. Convinced someone at the Guatemalan uh, consulate that he had, you know, the top had stolen his documents. He got back to the United States, still at large today. So that the the crime happened in 1993. January 1st, 1994 was the day that he was. accidentally freed by the Zapatistas and I think that one of the reasons that this book is has received so little attention um, is because it paints the Zapatistas in a pretty negative light not intentionally but it is simply a huge tragedy that um, you know there was this um, loss of justice and I have spoken with the um, lawyer who is a femicide um, lawyer, a specialist in um, in Chiapas, and who took the case on and was trying very hard to extradite him from the United States and get the FBI to help her, but they it was not a priority for the FBI. So um, I guess in conclusion, I'll just ask you if you have questions because I want to have time for questions. Um, and so much more I'd like to read for you but um, I don't think it's necessary to read okay well here's one map this map is shows tree cover loss so I think there's um, about uh, 37% of in the world, in the rainforest regions of the world, about 37 percent of rainforest is left from the original 100 percent. And this shows, you know, sort of the different times of reduction and. Um, is that green the part that's been? Um, the. Or whatever they call it, it it the. It's the intact. System. Yeah, it's intact. Oh, yeah, intact forest right. landscapes, oh, and also areas where. Um, there had been um, deforestation, but the, they've been protected now, and so they've been they, they've been coming back. Um, yes. So that was probably not the map you were wanting to see. Let me see if I can um, find this one. Is probably the one you wanted to see. And one of the things I want to point out here is the red, which is the Carretera Principal or the uh, the highway that uh, Luis Echeverria um con- constructed right through the Lacandon rainforest that really accelerated the deforestation and really accelerated you know the arrival of the tourism and of you know adventurers and um, yeah so anything else w- w- about this map sarah that Oh no that's great thank mm-hmm. you I'm just curious. Yes and you can see um, yeah, San Cristobal de las Casas the, in the highlands and how, you know, in relation <coughs> to um, the communities of La Caja, Chancayab, and Naha,
0: and Metzabok, and others. So let's thank Annalisa for the talking. Annalisa, Annalisa could you, sorry. Yeah. Could you say a little bit more about um, the s- slim chance for restorative justice that you hope the translation? Yeah,
1: yeah. I will. Um, so, you know, I think my only hope of restorative justice is at least to retell the story of Nuc García Panyagua, and I, I've I spent quite a bit of time with a woman named Doña Betty, who was informally adopted by an archaeologist, Franz Blom, and his wife, who was a photographer and advocate for the Lacandon Maya and very close friend of Chunking Viejo, as well, but also someone who kind of screwed up because she didn't understand Mexican government corruption. And uh, she kind of brokered the deal, really, with the Mexican government very naively, that did not help them at all. And so that's kind of ironic. But anyway, Dona Betty, a mestiza woman who kind of came to live with Franz and Trudy um, when she was a preteen. 'Cause there just wasn't enough, you know, at home and she needed some somewhere to be. And they took her on and she became kind of their servant and daughter. It's kind of a strange relationship. But she had been going to the Lacandon Rainforest with Franz and Trudy since way before there was any kind of highway, you know, they would go on horseback. So Dona Betty knows everybody in both of these communities, you know, she knows the oldest people and the youngest people and they all really love and trust her. And so the best thing to ever happened to me really in terms of this research was to get to know Dona Betty and to be able to go with her several times and sit with the people who are, you know, whose stories are told in this book. And I think one of the most moving and difficult things that, you know, that I did was read the last chapter on Kuti, which is the name that she that Mario Dio gives um because it, it refers to a caterpillar who if is not, you know, is not able to get to a certain kind of tree that it needs to be on will never become a butterfly it will just keep being a caterpillar until it eventually dies but it, you know, it won't become a, bu- a butterfly unless it's connected with this tree and so she likens Nook's um, fate you know, the tragedy of Nook's um, murder uh, femicide to, to this, this animal and um, so, you know, I don't know where, um, I don't, I mean, Robert Bruce, who definitely harbored Leo Bruce and impeded the investigation, uh, he's dead, Robert Bruce died quite a long time ago, Mario del Marion is, has di- died in 1999, um, Doña Betty is now very old and I, can't really go with her to the Lacandon rainforest again, although I can go back and see the people. Um, and I sat with um, some of Nook's siblings and um, one of Chanquim Viejo's wives, who was the mother of Nook, and read everything that uh, Mario del de Marion had written. And just, I was trying to, and, and so one of the daughter, one of her daughters would translate into Maya, La Candor Maya, and you know, we just check in and we all cried and it was very, very difficult and painful. And um, I was just wanting to know if everything that Mario Di Marion had written was true, was you know, was faithful to her understanding of what had happened and you know, they we walked around so I saw where he had built that house and where he'd planted some bamboo and it was a bamboo cane that he was beating her with when um, when she fell out of the house and and died. So I don't know. The restorative justice is simply in telling the story, um, and I guess hoping someone picks up this book who is qualified to you know fo- to follow this trail. If he was 23 in 1993, he's pretty young and he's, you know, he's probably around and he could be in Guatemala, he could be in Mexico. A lot of Lacandones feel that he's in Palenque. They're very afraid to go to Palenque because they think he's there. And um, others have told me that he's in the Midwest where he came from. So, I don't know. And it's very hard to find information, you know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a detective, I don't have those skills, but I want someone to pick this book up who can follow the trail and who has that kind of expertise? I wish I did, but absolutely. What's uh, um, I, I mean? I think what's gained is is just as juicy and wonderful as what's lost, and so I don't feel, you know, grief about it. But. Um, but I think what's lost is that Mario del Marion was uh, French. She did her um, doctoral dissertation at the Sorbonne in Paris. She uh, went to Mexico to do her field work and really never left. And she was a professor at the Instituto Nacional de Anthropología e Historia, the um, university, the kind of postgraduate university dedicated to anthropology, ethnography, linguistics, and. Um, everything to do with knowledge about indigenous peoples in Mexico. So, one of the things that I think I gain, I'm sorry I'm not answering your question, but is, you know, I've done a lot of other research about the Mexican government's relationship with indigenous peoples in Mexico and um, its project of Indigenismo, which is kind of an official government project of incorporating different indigenous groups into Mexico's development plan and um, you know, and so a lot of the ethnographic, anthropological, literary, artistic work, there's just a tremendous amount of, of stock that the Mexican government puts in creating or constructing images of indigenous peoples that serve their interests, you know, that, and uh, that, and so um, I can, I, Mario del Marión kind of misses a lot of that or doesn't elaborate, and I think I can do more with that, and, um, you know, Mario del Marion talks about, for example, um, this couple, um, the Bears, who were the first to come in and try to evangelize, and they, they definitely built churches, and they had a tremendous impact, especially in the southern Lacandon region, in terms of getting people to turn away from polygamy and getting them to turn away from their gods and their, their religious practices to go to the church. and. Uh, the church is very popular uh, in La Caja, And and um, but what am I losing? Um, what am I losing, Roberto? Do you have an answer to that? I think you, <laughs> you, you know, I think you're the one person in this room that's read the book, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, um. For
0: me, the most difficult part of the, the book is. Uh, to <coughs> try to understand what is, uh, because Mario Deal is, is fighting too with a, academy in mm-hmm. a lot. Yes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: So mm-hmm. in this book it says, one of the last books. Mm-hmm. <coughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: So how much in the book is part of this, this fight? Mm-hmm. mm
1: mm-hmm. Right. Trying mm-hmm. to Yeah, separate. it's true. hmm mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. Because the, the, the discussion she has about what's happening in ethnography and the fact that, um, you know, there's this turn towards understanding ethnographic writing as literature and as, mm-hmm. as, you know, as the product of projections on the part of the ethnographer not just some kind of objective scientific truth. Um, and so, in translating that, I'm trying to preserve that moment, 1997, when this book came out, where that was sort of a big, you know, debate, and a big, there was this sort of self-criticism happening in terms of the colonial, the, the, uh, the imperialistic aspects of, of anthropology, the role that anthropology had played um, in empire. And... Mm-hmm. Maria de Marion is, um, you know, situating herself there, but I also have really kind of condensed some of it because she repeats a lot. And mm. so in some ways I miss, I, I, I am shaving off somewhat her ruminations about the moment that she's in because we're not in that moment. And so it's, it's kind of dated and it's like, if that's the first thing that a reader of this book is gonna find, Uh, I can't afford to have it be, um, have it not kind of move along. So Mm -hmm. I really have taken liberties with with that, with her introduction. Oh, well Yeah. Yeah.
3: Apologies. uh, Mm -hmm. Yes. One of the things that I've been doing is exactly translating, but Mm -hmm. it's a two-degree translation, because the original was spoken in Mm Guerniciana, roughly translated into Portuguese, and now coming to English... Mm Is that the story as well with what you were doing? It, it began yes. as as mm-hmm. oral. Like yes, this is what oh absolutely. They said in yes. Mm-hmm. Lacundon Mayan. Yeah. yeah. And, and in then or- passed to Spanish in mm-hmm. some form or another. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. have access to the original Mayan as you're doing this? And if so, how might that change? I do not, mm-hmm.
1: and I wouldn't know no. what to do with
3: it if I okay. did.
1: But also, you know, it is true that like in indigenous literary production in Mexico and, and that I've read in the Americas, there is uh, and in all oral discourse, really, um, repetition is one of the you know, literary devices that we use to tell a story. And then when it gets put into writing, it's it, it, it's kind of clunky, or it yeah. could be. But the thing is, the, the stories of these women, I just read a tiny bit of Nakeen's story, I don't find that. When I'm translating their words, I'm not altering it nearly as much I don't need to be altering what it says nearly as much as what I'm doing with Mario del Marion's mm. thing. And then, you know, there are moments where Mario del Marion is clearly projecting a lot of emotional things onto a scene that she was never part of. Mm. She's, you know, she's narrating, she's telling the story. So
2: um,
1: I'm going to keep that in because I think that that is really important. It's, it's important to show you know, the different levels of fictionality that go into this, at the same time, there's something true that needs to be, you know, there are some truths in the book that come through no matter how many layers of, like, you know, kind of literary embellishment get placed on the text.
0: Could you answer the question... Uh, who do you, who's your audience? Who's your imagined audience? Oh, yes, audience? thank you.
1: Um, all of you are my imagined audience. Um, I really would love this book to just be um, something you could buy at J. Michaels or, you know, Tsunami or something like that. I really don't, I don't know who the proper, you know, publisher would be. I don't know if anyone will really even be as interested in it as I think it sh- they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, because you know, it, it's it is a book that you know, we are all concerned about the fate of tropical rainforests on our planet. And we know how essential they are for the health of all living beings. I mean, the the rainforest has a small area of Mexico, and it has 30 percent of the biodiversity of of the entire country. Um, It produces 30 percent of the fresh water found in Mexico. It's absolutely essential that it be healthy. And there are so many incredible projects underway that are intercultural for reforestation, for you know, dealing with um, you know. Weeds and undergrowth that comes and makes it difficult for forests to grow back. And um, yeah, there are there are really positive things happening in in the Lacandon rainforest, and there are positive collaborations between people who are experts, you know, from who are agronomists or you know who are specialists in agroecology and and those people who are practicing the agroecology, and they're learning from each other. Uh, there's a wonderful documentary that I really love called um, Mayan Roots of Reforestation. Raices Mayas de la Reforestación. De Reforestación. Mayan Roots of Reforestation. And it's by a man named um, uh, something, uh, Levy. I can't remember his first name right now. But it's a very good... Documentary, and there are others too that are really interesting. So,
2: um, in the final chapter, which mm-hmm. where you analyze, mm-hmm. um, how much do you update? It seems like you know there's been a lot happening, and you're
0: very aware of what's been going on, mm-hmm. and there'd be a very much temptation to. write Mm -hmm. your own book at that point and then just wonder what what you felt was worth including at
1: that point. Well, I, I think one of the things that's worth including is sort of putting the Lacandon rainforest in the context of all the tropical rainforests of the world and I've been reading lately about kind of how the Lacandon rainforest and the Amazon rainforest sort of formed geologically and why there's so much Um, sharing of certain species and you know it's like they were they were joined at one point and then separated and then joined again and separated and so it's a really fascinating kind of relationship between the Amazon Amazon rainforest and the Lacandon rainforest and I think you know I I started this talk with like you know when was the first time you heard of the Lacandon rainforest but actually it's not a place that you're bound to hear of very, uh, very often, like the Amazon rainforest is our paradigmatic emergency, you know, and the Lacandon rainforest has really been, um, has, has been off the radar in terms of deforestation, reforestation, in terms of cultural survival of the Mayan people. But yeah, one of the things is sort of to chart, you know, at the height of the population of Lacandon Maya in the region, in that area, and then at the you know, lowest point with all of the epidemics, what their population was, and how it sort of started to grow back, and also the issue of the fact that men, and this is something Mario de Marion goes into great detail about, so I don't need to go into that much, but you know, the men um, can and do uh, go outside of the community to find wives among celtales, among celtal women. They like that because then they don't have to do the um, service to the bride's family. Because normally a Lacandon man marries a Lacandon woman and maybe he has many wives, so he's gonna do this many times. He owes seven years of labor to her family. And so a Lacandon man is very motivated to find a Tzeltal woman, doesn't have to do those seven years of labor. And also since that's broken down, like the, the Lacandon Maya women are not um, being able to enforce that, and so the men are simply not, you know, doing their duty. And if, let's say I mean, widows are the ones who uh, who lose out the most. And Nakin's story gets worse and worse, in part because of her widowhood, um, and uh, you know other women too. But today, because the Lacandon Maya women are so often unmarried and, and without that support. They are the ones who are at the forefront of agroecology and of you know of going back to traditional planting of the milpa, um, corn, beans, and squash, and the sort of you know um, Sweden agriculture, which is the burn, tear it up, plant it, you know, then cut it down, let it rest, come back to it later. Um, kind of agriculture, so, so women are really doing a lot of hard agricultural work in order to survive, and they're the ones that are kind of keeping alive the knowledge of how to do it. <coughs> they're not the only ones, but they are playing a role they didn't used to play. Okay, so when, when uh, President Echeverria, who was the intellectual author of the, um, the Tlatelolco massacre in 1968, mm. and a very sinister individual, mm. uh, if you've seen the film Broma. It mm-hmm. captures that sort of political moment in Mexico of um, authoritarian populism and mediocrity under his rule. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the more I sort of... I, th- he plays a pivotal role in this, in the Lacandon rainforest. Mm-hmm. So he uh, encouraged Celtales and other Highland Mayan groups whose populations were growing and who were facing, you know, uh, land shortage poverty of the land, you know, and, you know, erosion, but also just um, not enough land. And so they were encouraged to go colonize the Lacandon rainforest, and they tend to raise cattle, so they want to, you know, um, um, deforest Mm -hmm. in order to have grasslands to raise their cattle, and the Lacandones do not raise cattle, and um, so among the Celtales, many are Zapatistas, there's great animosity between the Tzeltales and um, or between any other Highland Maya indigenous groups that are not Lacandon. I mean, except for when uh, they're women and they can be incorporated, but um, um, yeah, there's there's quite a bit of animosity between them. and. The Lacandones are not pro-Zapatista and the Zapatistas view the Lacandon Maya as coddled by the government, as, per, as bought, as, you know, as sort of um, sellouts to the government. And it's partly because at the moment in which they were sort of forcibly acculturated, and it was mm-hmm. very, very forcible. I, I showed some images uh, at the beginning that, that mm-hmm. show some of this these, this acculturation, um, you know, they were. Lined up, forced to change their names, forced to cut their hair, forced to dress differently, forced to learn how to use tractors, learn how to weld, and learn these you know different um, skills. Learn to sit at a desk and do you know learn to read and write, um, and um, all in the context of you know tremendous population loss. So their you know their incorporation into the Mexican government, into the Mexican state, was definitely at a moment of great you know weakness, and they they are still not out from under it. So they've been made the guardians of the protected areas, but sort of that guardianship is is meaningless. Really, they can't really enforce it. It's sort of like in if you've read like um, um, the Roundhouse. Uh, I want to say Louise Airdrift. Yep. Yes, yep. you know the the issue of the reservation has no. The, the, it's, it's legal system has no teeth to prosecute those who come from outside. And I think that's the same situation for the Lacandola Maya. They have all this authority, but it's really, it's really just meaningless. And, mm. I, you know, I, many people, uh, I mean, it's th- the choice to just go buy The government hands out and gives the maseka which is the genetically modified ultra-hybridized corn that's really garbage. Um, you know and so people buy that or buy the tortillas already made it's just it's so hard to be a farmer you know and it's like this is something you just go they bring it and you can't it's hard to find a lot of food stuffs, foods Mm -hmm. but there are tons of you know like soft drinks and uh, junk food you Mm -hmm. know it's everywhere Mm -hmm. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm. another epidemic yeah. I'm curious, it's in some of these stories, you mentioned the great population loss, and that this was living memory for some of the people, yeah. mm-hmm. um, that's something the folks I'm working with also went through, but mm-hmm. there is no living memory of oh, it, apparently, mm-hmm. only the young people survived, and
1: mm-hmm.
3: I just, mm-hmm. I'm wondering what, how do they describe it?
1: Yeah, well... I mean, that
3: would be mm-hmm. incredibly traumatic, and yet... Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem that histrionics is a part of the narrative style we have.
1: No, it isn't. No. The the focus is on um, look 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 at the riches we have right now, uh-huh. definitely. Um, among the older people that I have talked to when I've gone there, you know, and I really want to go back. It's just that it's a it takes some stamina that I haven't really had lately. Mm-hmm. But um I would like very much to go to go back again soon. Um so, um, yeah, I mean, I think the older people will, will talk about it, but they were children at the time, yeah. So they don't have a living, the Nakin, the, you know, she is not, she's no longer with us, and she lived very isolated from the, in La Caja outside the community, because she was sort of, a pariah because she had gone to live in Palenque and in other places because she was sold by her father many times um, and ended up, you know, really speaking Spanish and, and losing culture and she tried to come back and her family but nobody ever accepted her so she really lived, you know, alone, you know, in, in a very desperate situation um, and um, she's you know she was someone who I mean that her, her narration it's sort of like there's a before and an after you know like oh I all of a sudden we heard I heard the gunshots and I knew we were doomed you know and there is a kind of fatalism that um, that there's a motif in in these stories of um, of the older the older storytellers in, in the book um, of trying to, the, you know, the the family, the father, you know, picking up and trying to go to another place to find, uh, you know, some safety from the tzules, and their their breath was thought to be what carried the disease, you know. So and it kind of is. So um, and they wanted, they didn't want to be near the tzules, and looking at them, you know, was thought to bring the disease, and um, and so you know they would pick up and like try to move somewhere else and before you know it they would they were in a worse place so it was like that like a, I don't know just game of whack-a-mole or something like every time they would move okay this is a this is you know we're in the forest now and we're not there is no logging camp nearby it's like oh it's right there you know everywhere so and it's still like I mean you still see logging drops and there's still logging happening yeah and I mean there's still so much illegal there's just the governmentality in Mexico is so messed up right. you anyway.